Read and this is your move creep, the podcast celebrating action cinema from 1980 to the year 2000, from east to the west, from the worst to the best. So, in this episode, I speak to short film director Kavan Campbell about the 90s thriller Ronin. We also get into Kavan's love for action movies. We chat about the wonderful direction of Ronin and about those amazing car chases throughout the film. So, without further ado, let's jump into it, creeps. Hello, Kavan. How are you doing today? I'm doing all right, Larry. How about yourself? I'm good, thank you much. Um, so thank you much for coming on the show. It's been it's been a while for well, we talked about getting you on, so I'm glad to finally get you here. Yeah, thanks for having me. I'm looking forward to this. No, it's all the shit. Interesting <laughs> along the way. Absolutely, absolutely. Uh, so, as we always start, uh, can you tell me a little bit about your kind of first experience with action movies and with the seeing action movies when you were growing up? Sure. So, um. I have the same uh, person to blame for my uh, for my introduction to action movies as I have to blame for the person who uh, basically learned me uh, how I could um, uh, become a filmmaker, which is my father. Um, he's a he doesn't he doesn't work in film, but he's been a film buff his entire life. Um, he was the person who, when I was very very young. Uh, started introducing me to cinema and like a, a very wide range of it. It would be stuff like him, you know, uh, propping me up uh, to watch a late night, you know, Powell and Pressburger or, or um, Hitchcock film uh, with him when I was like two or three years old. Uh, of course, completely not getting what was going on. <laughs> and then he's getting shit from my mom for having done that. But that was like a lot of <laughs> what my childhood was like. And, yeah. um, so I was introduced to a lot of different genres of film, uh, classic up to up to reasonably modern stuff uh, through that. And the thing about my pops is he um, uh, he was living in uh, York in uh, the late 1960s. And for him, the James Bond movies were a really fundamental part of what he kind of loved about British culture of the Euro when he was living there and working as a, as a young man. Mm-hmm. Uh, he had spent... Basically, his uh, you know whole life from the sixties onwards um, to that point, being a, a Bond buff, and so of course those were some of the movies he introduced us to as well. My siblings and I, uh, he used to you know uh, watch, you know Connerys were our favorites, but yeah. uh, it being the you know seventies and early eighties, there was a lot of more movies going around. Um, when we got old enough, he would take us to the cinema with them. Like the first movie I remember seeing in this cinema, and you got to bear in mind, this is small town Prince Edward Island, which is like Canada's smallest province on the East Coast. Mm-hmm. Um, the first movie I remember seeing in the theater was License to Kill with him. In oh, wow. Where I, I 
alive. Certainly was too young to have been seeing that movie at the time. <laughs> dragged me along to it anyway. Yeah. And then, you know, there was that six-year gap. Uh, and then um, the Brosnan Bonds started and it became a really big thing uh, for he and I when, you know, by that point I was a teenager, for he and I to, to go to those movies uh, together when they'd be out in the cinema. Mm-hmm. So really, I kind of, through old VHS tapes and then a mix of that and going to the movies have um have him to blame for my introduction to you know action cinema of the 80s and 90s do you have do you have a, a favorite bond now uh, having watched those of you kind of your dad and do you when you think of bond do you have a kind of a, a bond as a connery or would you say that you're a bit more being a kind of a teenager at that time you're a bit more drawn to brosnan it's probably, I, I don't think I can narrow it down to one. It's probably, it's probably a mix of both. Mm. I think Connery fundamentally is the better Bond yeah. um, overall. And I think had a better run. I think Pierce Brosnan uh, got, yeah. got uh, kind of poorly treated by the fact that the, his his initial Bond film in, in uh, GoldenEye was great, real yes. return form, I think, yeah. um, for this series. But then it was... Uh, just a step down at every single turn and he mm. I got done dirty a bit by by how poor in terms of writing and some of the like actual artistic and filmmaking components mm. all of the subsequent movies were yeah yeah but it's that weird mix of the fact that like the connery bonds have not aged well <laughs> yeah yeah some of the yeah technical and artistic components which obviously as a director i pay attention to with everything mm-hmm, i mm-hmm. watch Definitely have not aged well in terms of their sort of cultural cachet, we might say. Yes, um, yes. <laughs> in terms of the sexism and racism behind them. So mm-hmm, mm-hmm. love those movies, though I do, and love Connery's interpretation of Bond, though I do. I find those movies generally, with the exception of From Russia With Love, which I think is the strongest of, of the Connery oh, yes. Bonds, and I think is is the least jokey and least leads into what would have been, you know, the sixties version of culture war bullshit. Mm. Um, that one I can still watch without much issue. The other ones I find kind of difficult because there's a lot of sort of uh, problematic and objectionable stuff in those movies. Yeah. Definitely. And something to be said for the modernity that the Brosnan series bought to brought to, um, to James Bond. Mm. The yeah. obvious example is, making M a woman, with, with yes. Judy, which I thought was an excellent choice. She's a phenomenal performer mm-hmm. uh, who did great work in the role. Um, and I think a lot of, you know, smaller updates that they did to the series was probably some of the smartest, um, you know, changes in terms of modernity uh, and modernizing the, the series um, that they've managed to do. And I think are more interesting in a cultural and filmmaking context than even the modernizations that they've done in the, the Daniel Craig era. So yeah. if there yeah. was a way to smash together Brosnan and Connery, they would be my ideal bond. I think. <laughs> Just Connery. Or yeah, Sean, exactly. John Brosnan. John Brosnan. That's a great name. It's a very Irish name. Um, so when you, so would you say that it's going to lead into my sort of my next question? Would when you when you think of action, is it Bond you think of, or do you, have you now maybe gravitated towards somebody else when you think of action movies and action cinema now? Well, I hope I'm not going to get pilloried for this answer, um, because you'd think, being a director, 
the answer I'm about to give would be a, a, a film director, but it's not. I'm actually going to mention a producer. For me, I think what I associate most with um, a, a strain of action cinema that uh, I really liked when I was growing up and in my formative years when I was learning about how filmmaking sort of worked and what I liked, um, and also still like now, Basically, you can't talk about that strain of American action cinema without mentioning Jerry Bruckheimer. Yes. Um, Bruckheimer is obviously connected to, I, I think, some of the biggest changes that were happening in terms of the direction of American action cinema in the late 80s and early 90s. And it's, and I should also say, through the large chunk of that time, he was obviously... Um, uh, producing partners with Don Simpson, um, mm. but he went solo after Simpson died during the production of The Rock. But I think um, between the two of them, but particularly him, because there's obviously been some continuity between the work that he did with Simpson in the 80s and early 90s, and then the work that he was doing solo. But I think you can't really isolate the direction that action cinema has taken in America uh, without talking to him, and it's uh, talking about him, pardon me. Mm. And I think it says something notable that several of the biggest names of action cinema directors at the time were people that were working under his umbrella. And I, I think the two most obvious examples are Tony Scott and Michael Bay. Yeah. Who are two filmmakers. I mean, Scott has unfortunately passed away now um, as of a few years ago. But um, through the 90s and into the 2000s, they were two filmmakers who were basically synonymous with creating what was largely known outside of um, uh, outside of you know series continuity, like the James Bond films or something like that, they, mm -hmm. it basically sort of modernized the house style of what people think about when it comes to action cinema. Um, you know, Cameron also has to be talked about in that in in that thing too. But I mm -hmm. mean, there's a lot that uh, that both Scott and um, and Bay worked repeatedly with. Um, with uh with Bruckheimer and um and Simpson uh through the 80s and and into the 90s and I, I think yeah I I think for me what I associate when I think about action movies is a lot of those movies from the 90s and a couple of them from the 80s but also just the direction that that cinema has taken into the modern era for better or for worse because of that work and because of its incredible popularity and money-making potential at the time so I think no real discussion about what modern Western action cinema is like right now can be had without talking about Bruckheimer as a, as a pretty driving force as a producer. Absolutely. Absolutely. Do you have a, do you have a favorite Jerry Bruckheimer film? It would probably be the rock. Although I yeah. can acknowledge that Crimson Tide is the better film. Mm, mm, yeah, <laughs> yeah. Absolutely a silly movie that should, <laughs> that, that, that should not be, uh, be, be put in the high pantheon of, of, uh, of yeah. big art by any means. Um, <laughs> but it's got Connery in a pretty cheeky yeah. uh, throwback reference to like, what would, uh, what would the Connery Bond be like in the 90s yes would, yes how, yes how would he have to work in the 90s i think i always liked that I, I think yeah yeah definitely yeah it's goofy and it doesn't take itself seriously so it's allowed to be funny mm. um but it also takes the genre seriously like it's not constantly apologizing for being an action movie and it takes yeah yeah the absolutely trope and the style of the genre that it's trying to do 
seriously in its own context. And I feel like that, for me, is one of the things that's kind of missing about a lot of modern action cinema is everything has evolved into this brand of being really quippy and really being uh, these type of things that seem to be embarrassed about being genre movies. Yeah. Constantly reminding the audience, oh, no, no, don't worry. Nobody takes this seriously. Look, we're all laughing about it being an action movie or a sci-fi mm, Yeah. I feel like the synecdoche for that is probably the MCU house style, which I find very exhausting mm. um, and not terribly enjoyable because for me, it's constantly, um, it's constantly dissipating the sense of tension because the film and the filmmakers are always reminding me, oh, don't worry, don't take any of this seriously. Don't worry. We know mm. that we're not respectable. We know that this is not anything um, that, that you should expend much brain power on. Just let it wash over you. And yeah. The, the action movies that have stuck with me, um, and I think the ones that were most instructive for me as a filmmaker myself, are the ones that were not embarrassed to be working within the genre that they were, and therefore take the genre seriously, even if they don't take the material and the storyline deathly seriously, if you if you understand the distinction that I mean. Yeah, yeah, definitely. I'm, I, think, I think those, those, like you say, I mean, it's, it's the... Ryan Reynolds of uh, Reynoldsness of you know cinema now it's everything's got to be kind of like jokey where it's kind of been like it's kind of more the sort of jokey thing about you know eighties and nineties action movies where they're just they're just ridiculous. Um, talked about this in the last podcast about being you know that uh one of my my guests kind of said the badass outweighs or cancels out the stupid. So it's if you if you make something so over the top but doesn't need to, it can be stupid and that's absolutely fine because you just it's it's knowing what you're you're putting across like the Arnold movies the Stallone movies you know, they knew what they were they knew were just the sort of bombastic sort of macho movies and they weren't very apologetic about it they are like you said before about the Bond movies they are a little bit ropey when they look back at them and the language they use and the themes they have especially some of the, the Rambo movies and the Rocky movies a lot about, about you know us versus them sort of thing, but they're still they still kind of knew what they were, and that's sort of like what I liked about them, and what I like about I sort of miss and sort of like you say yourself, kind of lacking from modern action movies. There are movies that are still very much um still know that what they're working on and working in the sort of the genre, but they're not as they're not in the cinema as much, which is a shame, I think, and that's sort of like what I sort of want to see, what will happen in the future. It's more kind of like Hollywood doesn't, has kind of forgotten about that and, you know, Thailand and Korea and Hong Kong, they've all sort of kind of taken over, you know, they've taken over the sort of the action movies of this year. All the kind of good stuff comes out of, you know, you know our our Eastern cousins, basically. I think it's interesting, but yeah, so it's it's... Well, I think we're gonna we're not really gonna get away from the MCU for a long, long time. So, I guess we sort of have to kind of. Um, I love the MCU, but uh, I'm I'm a huge nerd, so. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, maybe that's the problem. I I was never really a comic book guy. Yeah. I, um, so I don't, and I know some of my friends, including my my writing partner, who um, grew up being really into comic books, and he has a soft spot for the MCU movies, even if he can acknowledge that there's a lot of flaws to it. I mean, the irony being, uh, I make jokes about the fact that he's willing to forgive things that I think are, 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 uh, you know, silly and not really very respectable within the MCU stuff. And he says the same thing about 
me with action movies that I'm oftentimes willing to excuse yeah. poor filmmaking or uninteresting <laughs> writing because because my version of growing up with comic books was kind of growing up with with action movies and thrillers. Yeah. So I'm oftentimes probably a little more forgiving than I should be about some modern action movies and mm. willing to acknowledge that he is kind of the same way about the MCU. It gives him those films give him the juice and he enjoys them even if he finds them ridiculous and yeah. kind of silly enterprises and i'm always trying to chase something that's going to give me the feeling of what like sitting through you know action movies in the 90s felt like in the cinema when i was some kid in a small town who wanted to be a film director yeah so by talking about that that leads us easily into your pick for this week which is quite an, quite an amazing action action movie of the 90s um you've picked ronin you ever kill anybody i heard somebody's feelings once I never walk into a place I don't know how to walk out of. Oh, I know you. I don't think so. It's a small world. Not in my experience. He was hired to lead a mission. This is what we're after. To recover a package. We need to take it intact from several men who will be intent on preventing us. Nice. My kind of job that some are willing to die for. Relax, darling. Just a game. Could you take a picture of me and my wife? Get the background. Guy goes for the case. Other guy's protecting the principal. Oh, they're good. And everyone is willing to kill for. I want $100,000. I want it up front. I want another 100000 when you get the case. All good things come to those who wait. Target is on the way. We've gotten the word. We're moving. Come on, let's go. You don't want to go from there. Get out of here. Walk away. Walk away. Let's go! How did you know it was an ambush? That's the first thing they teach you. Who taught you? I don't remember. That's the second thing they teach you. We've made a good plan, and we're going to stick with it. What's this girl work for? Are you afraid? Of course I'm afraid. I think I'm reluctant because I'm happy. Who are our employers? I'm not under any obligation to let you know. If you are not, then the price has got to go up. It's not going to happen. The girl sold us out. We're following the wrong people. United Artists presents... Robert De Niro. I won't hurt you. Ronin. You worried about saving your own skin? Yeah, I am. Covers my body. Now, as I see every every episode, I give all my guests a list. I let them sort of go hog wild on what they want to pick, and you picked Ronin. So, can you tell me a little bit why you picked Ronin? What that why it stood out for you in, in on the list? Well, as well as it being a movie that I've probably seen over two dozen times now in my life, and that keeps getting better and better, uh, Ronan is a fascinating movie because I, th I think it hit at a really interesting time within the development of cinema. Um, an interesting time, I think, in the life of its uh, and career of its director, John Frankenheimer, as well, because it was basically the transition. It came out in 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 uh, ninety eight and was being filmed in in ninety seven. It came out during this 
transitory period between um, the old style of filmmaking within American circles um, that was primarily led by filmmakers, uh, it must be said, mainly men, um, who were working during the new Hollywood era of the uh, of the 70s and the very, very early 80s. And even people like Frankenheimer himself, who predated the new Hollywood era, because Frankenheimer started um, working in television in the 1950s and then started making his first features in the very early 1960s. Um, so this more old school studio throwback uh, style of filmmaking was now butting up against the changes in both technology and audience tastes uh, that a lot of people, I think, distill just to, well, computerized VFX were becoming a thing and it changed the way we made movies. And that is true, but I think is probably a little reductive. There were a bunch of changes that were happening in terms of just what audiences wanted out of big budget films and also how we make them. And so I think Ronan, it's kind of an interesting movie because it's sort of a film that without trying to ended up being the passing of the torch in terms of a certain style of uh, action thriller filmmaking that we just do not see anymore, mm. both for practical reasons that films are made differently now, even if they were to feature similar subject matter. Yeah. And also I think because audience tastes have, have changed to a degree that they would not be necessarily recognizable to a filmmaker mm. like John Frankenheimer, were he making films today. So I think Ronan, as well as being a really interesting film that I think has a lot of interesting trivia behind how it was made, that almost feels like when you know the difficulties that went into making it, it should not work nearly as well as it does, as well as it just being good. I think from a filmmaking standpoint, it is a really interesting um, sort of cultural artifact about where uh, big budget thriller filmmaking in America, North America really, uh, had been and where it was going. And it was in between those two poles at the time, I think at a, at a really interesting moment. Cool. That's awesome. Yeah, yeah. So it's so I'm going to go a little bit about the film just now. So uh, Ronan, as you say, 1998, directed by the legendary John Frankenheimer, written by David Mamet, um, obviously known for uh, being a, a very accomplished playwright for you know, Glenn Gallagher and Ross, obviously his most famous and obviously the most, one of the most famous um, adaptions is of, is of Glenn Gallagher and Ross. Uh, so in a bistro in Paris, a team is assembled by an IRA operative to intercept and retrieve a mysterious briefcase. The team, including an American played by Robert De Niro, an Englishman played by Sean Bean and a Frenchman played by Jean Reno, had to plan to get control of the case before it falls into the hands of the Russians. When one of their number double-crosses them, they set out in a hunt, to do, in a hunt down their former colleague, but was all lost in his cat and game of shifting loyalties. So, Gavin, what did you make of Ronan upon rewatch? Well, I think, as well as it's still just being a whole lot of fun, the thing that that uh, really stuck out to me on this rewatch um, is just how patient a film it manages to be in terms of its storytelling. And that's not to... I feel like using that term is almost kind of loaded because it would suggest, oh, this is an action movie, that means it's slow. Mm. And that's the thing, it's not slow at all. It moves no. at quite a good clip. Um, I think it's it's just restless enough in terms of the, the pace of its storytelling to um, to drive home the, um, 
the actual tension that they're trying to build and the ostensible seriousness uh, of the um, of of this mysterious object in a briefcase that they're trying to track down. Mm-hmm. But Frankenheimer, again, this probably ties back to my my thesis about it being this like transition point between old Hollywood filmmaking and new Hollywood, like modern contemporary Hollywood filmmaking, um, is that. Frankenheimer, for an action director, is very, very patient. He is uh, very big on environmental storytelling. And I'll I'll briefly just explain what I mean by that, which is the idea that you can teach an audience very quickly about who a character is by watching how they interact with all the things around them in their world. And that's not just how they walk into a room or how they stand when they talk to another person. That's literally how do they use props and objects? How do they treat things? uh, What jargon do they use? All all of these little things amount to environmental storytelling. An excellent example is something like the very opening uh, of the film where you see Robert De Niro's character, um, Sam, outside of this this cafe in in Montmartre in in Paris. don't really know what the dynamic is. He seems to be waffling on whether he is going to go in or stay outside. He goes around the back and hides a gun. Hmm. So you know something is is there. His way of hiding it is very specific because he's hiding it on the basis of putting it close to the exterior door. So you know already that this guy's an operator. But yeah. some of the more subtle stuff that that you might miss on a first viewing are things like the fact that it is wet outside on the streets, but it is not raining. So we know that it has rained recently, mm-hmm. um, but it's not currently raining. Yet the shoulders of of, uh, of Sam's jacket are soaked through, which mm. means he's been waiting for a while, clearly scoping out this, this place, um, because he was there on the street watching out for whatever's going on and and planning his direction for whatever he's going to do from when it was still raining. It's little details like that that are very patient that you need a director who's going to take the time to actually make them work um, within the plotting and have them make sense that I think make this film feel real, feel, feel like it has a level of verisimilitude that is kind of missing from a lot of more bombastic um, films of the era, and especially... A lot of modern cinema now, because now everything is so restless and the speed of the editing for action movies uh, and the cutting on them has increased to such a degree that damn near nobody has the patience to indulge in that kind of environmental storytelling because you're constantly cutting together between like 20 different shots in the span of 20 seconds. Yeah. You don't have the time for that kind of of um, of intricate, you know, uh, prop based and and dressing based storytelling mm. when you don't have the the patience to do it. And I think that's probably the thing that for me stuck out most on this in, on this rewatch is just how well paired the sensibilities of Frankenheimer and Mammoth because Mammoth is really big into 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 jargon and subcultures and he loves that shit, especially when it comes to military stuff. And um, so putting those two filmmakers together, uh, I, I think just made it work. And it is a surprisingly robust form of storytelling that tells you a lot of information about the characters and a little complex information about them, but very efficiently because it just has the patience 
to treat the audience with respect and let them figure it out. It doesn't hold your hand about a lot of this stuff, you know? Yeah, I, I agree. I agree, definitely. Yeah, it's quite, uh, obviously, the movie, obviously, upon what you were watching last night, is quite a, a kind of heavily stylized movie that you kind of spoke about just a moment ago, you know, even from... Even the opening text, it's, you know, when it's introducing the concept of Ronins as kind of massless samurai, it's, you know, it's the kind of font they use is very deliberate, it's very kind of striking, it's, it's kind of got a visual style straight away from the, from the bat. From you, kind of end, and you spoke a little bit about it already, but as a director yourself, is this sort of a, almost kind of a masterclass in filmmaking, would you consider? Hard to say a masterclass, because I feel like that word gets thrown around a lot. Yeah. In okay. a lot of ways, uh, absolutely. I, I mean, I think there's a there's a funny joke um, that uh, that as a filmmaker, you sometimes learn more from watching bad movies than from watching good. Mm. Movies. <laughs> and there's, I think, an element of truth to that yeah. um, because you get to see what doesn't work and the things you don't want to do if you're if you're um, if you're working on something comparable. Uh, Ronan, I think, is an excellent example of a film that is not high art by any means, but manages to just have a very, very simple mindset of how it is going to achieve uh, its effects and its storytelling that is not simplistic. It's, if, if you understand the distinction, um, as I said a little bit earlier, doesn't hold your hand. It doesn't dumb everything down. It lets you be confused for a little bit and sort of expects you to do a little running in place and figure out what's going on a little bit. But it also has a very, very simple and effective style, um, which is uh, which is fundamentally to have just a very efficient use of um, shot selection and and also even within the action sequences to make a shot do more than one thing, mm. which is something that for me as a director, I'm always thinking about when I'm prepping a film. And, and to be clear, I don't make action movies. So I don't, <laughs> I don't make comparable things to what Frankenheimer was making. Um, although I do work in the genre space uh, lately, mainly in horror and thriller stuff. Mm. But, um, but I'm always thinking about how any shot that I come up with when I'm doing pre-visualization or storyboarding or shot listing to prep for a film, how can this do more than one thing? Um, so as opposed to just having a shot where I know I need a close-up on a given character and then being like, okay, well, I'll shoot this close-up and then I'll shoot a close-up of the other character that they're talking to, which is a perfectly fine way of making a film. I try to think about how can I make this more interesting by having that initial close-up do more than just be that close-up. And maybe it doesn't have to be both close-ups in the same shot, but maybe it's that uh, I can highlight an important prop within the scene that gives some nuance to something. Frankenheimer is kind of a master of that. He's done that in a lot of his other work, even going back to like The Manchurian Candidate is yes. an excellent film for that. And that was this, his second feature that he had ever made. I mean, again, to be clear, he'd been working for like 10 years by that point, primarily in television. But like that was his first like big American feature film. And it was his second feature that he had, had done uh, ever. So he was very young and very astute with that. But I think Ronan is where he he took that style of filmmaking nearly to its apotheosis. I mean, it was the second last film uh, or feature film that he made before he died. 
And um, and the entire film, if you pay attention to that, is doing that in some really smart and really interesting ways. And I think that probably more than anything is the masterclass. Because though, when people talk about Ronan now, they primarily talk about the car chases, which to be yes. clear, are excellent. And I'm sure we're going to be talking about Yes, those. absolutely. Yes, 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 absolutely. But that's the standout stuff that when people think and talk about the movie, that's the thing that they talk about first. Mm. Because it's the flashiest part of how the film was made. And it was, you know, in fairness, the biggest part of how the film was advertised originally when it yeah. was in its initial release. But when you see the way that Frankenheimer is is very intelligently, but also very efficiently shooting the quieter and smaller scenes, that's where he, that to me is the more interesting stuff because that's where he's bringing some of that more astute, you know, action sensibility into quieter scenes where you might not be expecting it. And I think that's the thing that gives this such an interesting pace, but also a really confounding, in some ways, level of complexity because of the fact that it's it's so efficient and so simple in terms of its style, and yet it manages to pack every shot with things that you can see all over the frame. So there's always something to look at, and that's why I think over the course of, 25 30 times that i've seen this movie over the course of 25 years i'm constantly getting new things out of it because there's always something that is going on within the frame yeah it's definitely definitely something when i watched i rewatched it last night um ahead of the podcast and immediately struck out to me is just such a it's almost almost in a way sort of like a play and there's when 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 you get down to the Interactions you have, you know, with Nero has with Sean Bean, or you know, Stellan Skarsgård, or Jean Reno, in the cafe, or in you know, sort of their, their kind of hideout. It's always it's very like sort of kind of one act sort of play. Almost uh, it's very sort of uh, concise, and though there is action in it, uh, there are, you know, I watched it years ago, and now obviously just watched it recently. I see it last night. I was surprised by how little action it was, but you're never really bored. Um, it's never really, you never really kind of let go. You're still like, there's still sort of a chase, there's still kind of anxiety, there's still sort of a, a movement towards towards the film and throughout the film that, you know, it's, it's like you said, it just moves at a clip, but it's never really, doesn't have to have bombastic action scenes. When there, but when there is, there is, you know, there's, there's amazing shootouts and there's an amazing car chase we're going we'll to go into in a moment, but that's almost sort of the cherry on top, on top of, you know, just this amazing sort of cast, and this amazing direction and this amazing kind of cinematography. So it's it's all sort of a, a kind of melting pot of kind of really great um, aspects of, of filmmaking. Agreed. Yeah, absolutely. And um, And I think it's a lot of, you know, what I was referencing a little bit earlier, that there's like so much environmental storytelling in every scene, even in the quieter ones, that keeps that level of intensity in the quieter stuff. And that I think probably makes the film in retrospect feel like it has a lot more action than it does. Mm. Because the stakes are uniformly kept high, yes. even in the scenes that don't involve gunplay or car chases mm. uh, of any sort. Yeah, it's def, def, and it's so obviously we're kind of go out to speak a lot about the like, car chase scenes that that do happen and that they are very you know hyper realistic. Even if I say the gun violence in this is very hyper realistic, it's 
though you know that's very is very quite bombastic when they are you know have these big kind of shootouts almost like kind of almost like heat this in, in that sort of way but it's it never kind of veers off into kind of the ridiculous it's always very sort of focused and very like this is what would actually happen sort of thing um the car chases that i was completely impressed by especially the the one kind of near the end um and even skip skadoof who plays larry which is obviously i had to have a little bit of a love for because you know we, we've cho- chosen names basically um he did all his all his car car stunts for that that scene and the very kind of the very kind of first chase they have um which i thought was phenomenal like and to see see what reading that now reading that after i watched it was and then like thinking back to you know what he was doing in that scene it was it was it's immense and there's a lot of also a lot of um patience and a lot of uh, trust from john frankenheimer to let him let him do that and get so into the frame i think it adds a lot of a, a huge kind of dollop of kind of realism to the scenes and makes them a lot more tense and a lot more like scary now if i'll go watch it back now i know that he's in that driving seat and it's it's completely crazy absolutely i think the verisimilitude of how the action scenes are shot is absolutely to the film's credit and is clearly very intentional um and you're absolutely right it creates i think it creates a level of tension within the car chases that even somebody who doesn't know how it was filmed doesn't know that as you said skip Sudith, uh did his own stunt driving in the um in the original um or the the first of the two main car chases even if people don't know that i think there's a level of verisimilitude a level of realism and a la- level of like rawness and tension to it that you can palpably feel as a viewer even if you don't know where it's coming from mm. And I think that is one of the smartest choices that Frankenheimer made in the film, because you don't need to be a filmmaker. You don't need to know the trivia behind why does this feel so much more real than other car chases I've seen to just feel it in your chest that it feels dangerous. And it feels dangerous because it's really happening. Because they've got, even for the main actors who obviously are not doing their own stunt driving, mm-hmm. um, for the, for the um, car chase in, um, in Paris, they apparently used a lot of uh, right-hand drive model versions of the, of the cars yeah. that had, um, that had uh, dummy um, steering wheels uh, on the left-hand side. Um, and so... The, the actors could be mimicking what the stunt driver is doing right next to them. So you've got the actors who are in there really in, you know, these snippets of, of high-speed um, car stunt work. And all of that lends a real gravitas to it. I mean, even just practically speaking, you see the effect of gravity on bodies in space in those cars. Yes. Even if you don't know why you can tell that there is real inertia affecting those actors when the car takes a turn. Yes, yes, exactly. And and that is a thing that you cannot easily recreate if you were doing this in a process environment in the studio, which is in a lot of ways how the components of of a modern-day car chase that involve main actors would be done now. And they're very much more technically advanced than doing green screen stuff in in cars would have been when 
Ronan was being shot. We can achieve much more in terms of um, in terms of technology and the interaction of lighting with with the actors and create a lot more verisimilitude. But it is way harder to create the, that palpable sense of gravity because we no longer as readily put actors in real cars anymore. Yeah. All of that stuff is palpable, I think. Even to somebody who doesn't understand why it feels more real, they're going to know that it feels real because it's all this stuff that just feels like the reality we see around ourselves. Absolutely. And, and it's for me, when it, watching something that, I mean, if you look at the look at the kind of modern films like Fast and the Furious, sometimes it, even the car chases and that are not really always the, you know, physical cars, you know, stunt drivers. It's, there's a lot of that, obviously, but when you look at that film, like you said yourself, it's, you know, you're you're seeing Robert De Niro act, acting and trying, and I imagine it would be quite nerve-wracking being in that car and having to act and sort of be like, right, okay, I'm, I'm, we're going like bananas here, we're going into oncoming traffic here, but I need to sort of act as if I'm like, I'm, I'm cool as a cucumber. So it's, there's, there's like you say, there's, there's this, this realism about it and it's sort of like, there's sort of an anxiousness about it because you, you're sort of put into that, uh, into their shoes, went whole way through those those car chases, and especially the last one because it's so so well done and so tense and fraught. Because because you see, they are driving in oncoming traffic. The the stunt driving is impeccable in this movie. It's it's probably the finest stunt stunt work I've seen in a long long time in terms of certainly in terms of driving. It's just it's credits those people those stunt drivers are, are amazing in this movie and it's something that that's should have been um applauded basically I think at that at the time. Yeah, agreed. Uh it it will never not disappoint me that this film was only like a middling sort of box office success. I agree. I, I think probably the one thing that everybody talked about um when it was in release was the was the car chases. Um there's a lot more to it, obviously. I'd be remiss if I didn't mention one thing, though, which is that um, Frankenheimer served as his own second unit director on this film, which is uh, very, very uncommon, mm. um, especially in American big-budget studio filmmaking. Um, and just as a brief explanation to any of your listeners who might not know what a second unit director is, is that um, for action and stunt-heavy films... Typically, all of the stunt and action material that uh, is shot without the lead actors gets photographed by what's known as the second unit, which mm. is like a separate separate um, second crew yeah. that does all the shooting with the stunt team and stunt, by and large, stunt drivers. And you'll have a second unit director, uh, and prototypically, most second unit directors started as stuntmen and stunt coordinators um, who do the large bulk of the shooting for an action sequence, um, again, that does not involve the main, the main actors. Uh, it is very, very common. And, and, and to be clear, it's not in any way a slight against any filmmaker not being good enough, therefore needing a second unit director. Mm. Steven Spielberg works with second unit directors yes. all the time. Uh, it, is, it is literally, I think, smartly about about knowing people's strengths and mm. and being efficient with your time and knowing that there are very very smart second unit directors who 
know how to assemble a scene in pre-visualization and know what they need to get to edit a scene together and can do it very efficiently and know how to work with stunt teams to get what they need to do very quickly. So I need to point out, it is very much to Frankenheimer's credit that he worked as his own second unit director. And it says a lot about the fact that the film manages to have a real cohesion between the action scenes and the, um, and the quieter character-based scenes. Um, because you're talking about a filmmaker who was basically at the top of his, his form. I mean, in mm. reality, five years later, he'd be dead. Um, after, a, after, you know, by that point, a 50-year career. So he was at the height of his powers seemed equally comfortable working with the quieter and the louder material. And mm -hmm. I think it also helps the verisimilitude of the piece also helps it feel realistic. And also means that the environmental storytelling is consistent from the smaller or character-based scenes into the action scenes as well, because you have the same single voice, same single eye that it's being filtered through. And, um, and I think that that deserves to be pointed out. Yeah, it's, def it's definitely to John Frankenheimer's credit that um, he's able to sort of balance that so well. And uh, obviously, we kind of talked about like the masterclass thing about before, but maybe it's not so much that. It's obviously a big kind of word that's thrown around a lot, but it is for you know because he he has been kind of known for these sort of maybe just a little bit more quieter moves, more sort of you know dramatic performances rather than being sort of these kind of basic scenes. But when he does it, he is does show you that he's really fully capable of making these kind of high tense action scenes believable, realistic, and and also um, extremely visual. I think this is is very much to his credit, and it's it's it definitely makes him kind of stand out in in terms of action movies. When you look at this compared to you know some like The Rock or compared to something like some Stallone or Arnie kind of came or put out that time, it's got it sticks out and it's always stuck out for me as has been. A kind of a little bit ahead of the pack when it comes to these sort of nineties genre movies, I think. So Absolutely. we're, we're going to go into a little bit about the big five as we discuss, you know, action stars at the time. So we're going to go through a little few ones, uh, some interesting ones this time. Um, so big five. So Stallone uh, was not in any action movies this year. He was actually in Ants with um, everyone's favourite director now, Woody Allen. <laughs> Everybody loves Woody Allen now. It's, no, no, like, no, doesn't dislike him. Um, it's not remotely a problematic figure. No, not at all. Not at all. Absolutely, he's, he's still very much, still very much part of the Hollywood elite. Uh, <laughs> Arnie didn't. He took a year out. This is probably because he was hiding from everyone after Batman Robin came out. Uh, <laughs> Oh, that's uh, right. I was thinking. I was thinking. Oh, was he was was he taking a break after a razor? But now, yeah, you're right. Batman and Robin would have been the last thing that he did, and yeah. <laughs> I, I mean, the, listen, listen. It's still it's 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 still a fun movie. It's still very very daft. I mean, it's not winning any Oscars anytime soon. A few Razzies maybe at that time, but not certainly not any Oscars. But it's still a very fun movie, and Arnie plays his part in it quite well. So, uh, Steven Seagal. Was on an, on his sort of downstroke at this time. Um, you made you came out with the film The Patriot. Um, it was going to sort of direct to DVD phase at that point. So that's where he was getting to do a lot less action and just a lot of more sitting down in black kimonos. Um, John Claude, John Claude Van Damme brought out Knockoff, which is one of my favourite uh, films. Um, uh, Shoy Hark, obviously an amazing Hong Kong director. He also brought out Legionnaire. Uh, Jackie. Uh, 
this is this is his big year. He, this is the year he came out with Rush Hour, um, which is obviously arguably biggest hit, I would say. Um, it's certainly this side in certain Western audiences. Um, and also brought out the kind of the film Who Am I, which is an also an also a very very fun um Jackie Chan movie. So we're gonna now gonna take a little trip into the trivia zone, Kevin. I hope you enjoy this. Surprisingly, this is the only film that Sean Bean doesn't die in. Uh, actually, in fact, he kind of walks off very much alive, and even gets uh, gets even paid for his time after a sort of a kind of bit of a scolding from um, <laughs> Rob De Niro. He just sort of goes right, okay, you've had your piece by, and that's it. It's I was so I'd, I'd sort of had this in my mind that he'd actually died in this movie, but no, he just sort of like walks off and I thought just oh he must come must come back and sort of play a part in it but no he just sort of just saunters off and just that's it and like you go okay bye well, Sean the f- Bean. The the funny thing and I know it's become this big meme about Sean Bean always dying in movies. Yeah. But um but the funny thing about that is if I recall have not listened to it in years, but uh Frankenheimer's director's commentary for Ronan, I think, said that they kept trying to find a way to kill Spence after it's revealed <laughs> that he, you know, is basically lying about his uh, yeah. about his background. Um, they they kept trying to find ways to like make it work within the context of the film to have him, you know, be abducted by uh, by some support players in the IRA and disappear mm. and things like that. And uh, apparently, they could just never find a way to to satisfactorily give him a send off that would feel like, oh, this is what this slimy guy deserves. Yeah. So they're like, maybe we should just like, we'll just move on and just keep moving the film forward and just let that, just let that kind of drop. So in retrospect, because I know this movie predates the Sean Bean dies in everything meme. Yeah, yes. But yeah. it's funny to think <laughs> that like Frankenheimer really, really wanted to kill him in this movie, but just couldn't yeah. find a way to do it right. It's just like a big list of like things say, how to kill Sean Bean in this movie. Like just, yeah. it's this big like whiteboard, I imagine, in the sort of director room, like just writer's room going, but what you have to find a way for it for it to happen, like but he has to get his comeuppance, but no, he's just gonna get a kind of wad of cash and be like, forget about us and go off your merry way, sort of thing. Yeah. Which is just very, very like I suppose he's he's had his at that kind of time in the nineties, he's had his big sort of dramatic death in Goldeneye and um and sort of we become a little bit of a but now if you if more was made now, it would make some fantastical way for him to die and you do. It does. It's almost almost set up after the sort of him and the kind of what color is the what color is the boathouse in Hereford scene. Yeah. Um, Hereford I love, I love that scene. You want to talk to me about an ambush? I ambushed you in a cup of coffee. It's like <laughs> that's it's amazing. Like that perfect David Mamet line. That just like ugh, I I love it. The other line I love is um, have you ever killed anyone? Was that hurt someone's feelings one time? So that was quite. That's that's that was a, a big tra- that was a kind of trailer kind of. Uh, Lane wasn't, I think, at one point. So. I think so. Admittedly, I've not seen the trailer for this movie in years, but it sounds like something that would have been in the yeah, trailer. Yeah, I can, I can remember. I can remember that's kind of the kind of was sort of banked on, and again, like you said before, it was based more banked more on because of the action of it rather than being sort of more sort of tense, sort of kind of thriller aspect of it. Um, yeah. So keeping in with the sort of espionage theme, we've actually got three ex Bond villains in this movie. Obviously, we talked about Sean Bean from Goldfinger. Uh, we've got Jonathan Price from Tomorrow Never Dies. I get another Brosnan one. Uh, mm-hmm. Michael Lonsdale, who plays mm-hmm. P- Jean-Pierre in this movie. 
he was actually Hugo Drax and he was in Moonraker. So that's quite an interesting, like, and again, again, we've, we've also got Sean, John, John Price and Sean Bean from Game of Thrones. Um, that's, it's, it's quite a, it's quite a kind of mad thing that these kind of, that's kind of sort of, sort of gravity around each other quite a lot. So it's, inter- it's really interesting. And I think that's, and obviously we talk about bonding a lot and it's quite an interesting little sort of point, point to make. Yeah. Um, apparently, uh, celebrated porn actor Ron Jeremy was originally cast in this in, in a scene in this movie, but it was actually cut out. Um, whether it's a good thing or a bad thing, I I suppose we'll never know. I don't particularly want to see the Hedgehog in this movie. If I'm if I'm, <laughs> I thought it would sort of take me out completely out of it. Like I don't know. Yeah. I don't, it was a strange sort of choice, to, like to think about him being in this movie. Uh, I'm sure yeah. he would have been playing some sort of sleazy sort of guy. I imagine he's not going to be yeah, one of the team, is he? It was a it was a funny era, uh, the late nineties of like Ron Jeremy. So I don't know what the timeline is of when that documentary made about his life was made, whether it predates or postdates uh, Ronan. But yeah, there was this like, and there was a series of rumors that I remember going around about like cameos of him in different American movies. Like he's apparently supposed to be an extra in Ghostbusters, I think, or something. And I, I remember, yeah, there was this window of time around this, like late nineties, early two thousands, um, where he would just where, where it's like everybody just wanted to like talk about like random films, like real non pornographic films that he was that he was in and stuff. So yeah, I remember hearing this this. Rumor, I mean, I don't know. It might have just been a bit walk-off part <laughs> or something. And I feel like most of these rumors, realistically, were probably started by Jeremy himself. Um, yeah, yes, yes. I was not like, Oh, yeah, and I was totally in Ghostbusters. I was totally in, I mean, who the hell knows? <laughs> so it, would have, it would have been an interesting wrinkle, I suppose, in the, in the film. But I think it. I think we've uh, dodged a bullet on that one, I think, really. Probably. Um, so we talked a little bit about the kind of car chase earlier on. So 80 automobiles were destroyed in total during the filming mm-hmm. and they used 300 stunt drivers uh, were employed uh, to give the chase scene the end, the most realism impact we discussed earlier on. It's, as we both agreed, it's an amazing uh, car chase and all, both the car chases are amazing in this movie. Um, now Jean-Pierre talks about the, the 47 Ronin obviously committing seppuku. Actually only 46 of the 47 Ronin actually committed seppuku. Um, the last one, Teresaka uh, Kishimon, uh, he lived he was 87, but he was buried along with the other 47 Ronin, or a 46 Ronin, I should say, um, when, he, when he passed away, which is, which is amazing. But yeah, so Jean-Pierre's telling a little bit of a fib in that, that, that scene. I um, oh. always love that scene because it looks as if he's painting Warhammer 40, 40k, which is a <laughs> big thing that I'm quite happy. I'm like, oh, he's like doing his Warhammer, but no, it's a, a, a terribly sad same as painting um yeah so that is Ronan uh well our question I'm gonna go gonna go a little bit about final thoughts and would you recommend Ronan to sort of the an action fan oh hell yeah it's I don't know it's a great movie I still love it I I, I wouldn't I mean that question seems like kind of a gimme when I told you I've already seen the film like like two dozen times. Yes, yes, so, yes. <laughs> uh, if there was not something uh, in there worth uncovering, uh, I probably would not have watched it nearly as much as I have. It's I have this. It's not a hugely long list, but I have this list of movies 
that I can put on that will cheer me up no matter how shit mm. I'm feeling. Yes. And this is one of them. Like, it's just, it, it's a real fun ride and always puts a real goofy-ass smile on my face, uh, no matter how down everything's feeling. Yeah, definitely. I, I agree. It's, it's, it's an accomplishment in kind of filmmaking and also it's, it stands up against, you know, the films of that era and it's still very much impressive and Again, we, I can't talk so much, so much about the car chases, but the action scenes in this movie have st- stood the test of time. And you know, since I've seen it in the 90s to up to now, in 2023, it's, it's still an amazing film. I think it's also, you may, you may agree that it's a De Niro film that needs to be talked about a bit more. Um, we talk about obviously the amazing Scorsese movies, um, but it's, I think it's a film that needs to be sort of, applauded more for for the newest actor and they're all every amazing actor as in, in a genre no especially um not so much uh jonathan price with that horrible irish accent Nash, like they both have natasha McElone and jonathan price have really bad irish accents as someone who has a, a lot of, of irish family and irish friends um they would be completely disgusted with <laughs> They're, like, because these two are, are kind of like very highbrow English, you know, thespians, but they they can't do that Irish accent. It's it's very very dodgy. Um, well, despite uh, <laughs> despite having an Irish first name, I don't think I'm the right person to be able to judge how authentic <laughs> Irish accents are. All I can say is it worked for me in the moment. Yes, uh, yes, yes, yes. It worked in the moment. I'm completely willing to acknowledge that they're probably not hugely authentic. Uh, yes, actors. yes, yes, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, so it's going to go on a little bit about plugs. So where can people find you on the interwebs? Uh, well, so I um, am on Facebook and Instagram at uh, Interlock Pictures. Um, it's the name of my production company. Uh, my website is unfortunately horribly out of date, but you can find that at uh, interlockpictures.com. That's I-N-T-E-R-L-O-C-K, pictures, all one word, um, where you can see a couple of my previous films that are uh, that are posted up there. Uh, I also post my silly nonsense thoughts on Twitter at... Uh, C cam operator, um, and that's the main places that you will you will find me online. Well, all I was left to say is thank you much for coming on, Kevin, and hopefully we'll talk to you down again down the road. I hope so. Yeah, I, I hope uh, hope I was a enjoyable enough presence to not completely flush me down the memory hole. No, absolutely not. No, we'll definitely have you back. I've already got you in the list, so don't worry. <laughs> well, thank you. <laughs> thank we'll see you down the road. Thank you. Thanks. Thanks. So that was a very lovely and knowledgeable Kevin Campbell there. Definitely felt like I was getting a little bit of an education there on the kind of film industry side of it. So I'm looking forward to talking a little bit more about that side of things with people in the future. So if you are a director or you're a producer, you're a constant, whatever it may be, get in touch and we'll kind of discuss it. On the next episode, I'll be sitting down with Sam Inglis from the Fearless Pretender podcast. We're going to chat about the Samo Hung banger, Eastern Condors. So, as usual, you can follow the show on Instagram and Twitter at Your MC Podcast. You can email the show on yourmovecreeppodcast at gmail.com. Like and subscribe, give us a review on iTunes, and I'll see you on the next one, Creeps. <laughs>